Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussion of sex with children, murder, and torture that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On June 16th, in the year 32 CE, the sun shone brightly on the Roman island of Capri. Turquoise water lapped at its shores. But for most of the inhabitants of the picturesque island, it was not a day at the beach. 73-year-old Emperor Tiberius had demanded another opulent pool party. His servants rushed to gather jugs of wine, exotic fruits, and other luxuries. But most of all, they knew Tiberius craved one thing, young boys and girls. Tiberius's trusted servants and bodyguards scoured nearby villages for children and transported them to the emperor's island. There, they gave them two strict rules. First, never stare at the emperor's misshapen head or his skin covered in lesions. And second, do whatever the emperor wants. In particular, the emperor was enamored with young boys and girls swimming through the archway of his legs, tickling his genitals. For Tiberius and his young guests, the party continued into the evening. Servants lit oil lamps around the swimming pool and the stone grottoes. There, in the flickering shadows, Tiberius and his guests had orgies. Of course, the children had no recourse. Tiberius was their emperor. If they refused his advances or those of his noble guests, they were banished. Or worse, they were taken to a balcony overlooking the Mediterranean a thousand feet below and thrown over the side. It was a scene of grotesque decadence painted by the historian Suetonius that became synonymous with Tiberius's final years of rule. He was no longer just an emperor or even a dictator. He was a legend, a monster. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original by Parcast. I'm Kate. And I'm Richard. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals by Parcast for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. This season, we're time warping back to ancient Rome in the early first century. There, we're exploring the notoriously violent and depraved reigns of emperors Tiberius, Caligula, and Nero. Today, we're chronicling the last years of Tiberius's reign. After close to a decade of stable and moderate leadership, Tiberius faced tragedy in his life. In quick succession, he lost Germanicus, the realm's next emperor, and Drusus, his son. Grief-stricken and paranoid, Tiberius left the empire in the hands of his trusted bodyguard, Seanus. He retreated to the island of Capri, where, according to his worst historical critics, he immersed himself in debauchery and sexual perversions. There, he transformed from an emperor into a tyrannical monster. The depravity is coming up. Stay with us. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the final days of October in the year 19 CE, a Roman messenger arrived from Egypt. The rider brought an urgent dispatch to 60-year-old Emperor Tiberius. His nephew and adopted son Germanicus was dead at the age of 33. Tiberius was reportedly devastated. In the 10 years since he adopted Germanicus, he hadn't always been enamored with the soldier. At times, some historians say, he'd felt threatened by Germanicus's popularity and worried that he might stage a rebellion. But he had raised Germanicus as his own son. He had vowed to protect him. Now, the boy was dead. Germanicus's death, however, meant far more than the loss of a family member. Germanicus was Tiberius's heir. Five years earlier, Tiberius had promised his legendary predecessor, Emperor Augustus, to pass the Roman Empire on to Germanicus, who could trace his family tree back to Julius Caesar. Now, with his heir gone, Tiberius faced a dilemma. Who would ascend the throne when he died? At 60 years old, Tiberius knew all too well that he could fall ill or become injured at any moment. Over his six decades, he had personally witnessed the brevity and unpredictability of life in the Roman Empire. His father had died at the age of 52. His brother succumbed to a broken leg at the age of 29. And now, Germanicus's life had been cut short early, perhaps by poison. Tiberius knew his own end was coming sooner rather than later. So he had to prepare the empire for that reality. And to Tiberius's credit, the empire was already in a stable economic and administrative position. Over the last five years, he had shepherded a period of moderate and restrained rule. Unlike his predecessor, Emperor Augustus, Tiberius didn't build elaborate temples to himself. Instead, he chose to fix aging temples and roads. He strengthened aqueducts and helped create a system of grain distribution to benefit Roman citizens. Where Augustus undertook costly wars of expansion, 
Tiberius strengthened military bases at the edges of the empire and expanded the realm through diplomatic treaties. While Augustus was a spendthrift, Tiberius was a frugal emperor. As a result, Tiberius grew the Roman treasury by billions of gold coins. With the treasury and empire in a strong administrative position, all that mattered now for Tiberius was picking the next ruler. So he turned to Germanicus's sons, 13-year-old Nero Caesar, 11-year-old Drusus Caesar, and 7-year-old Gaius Caesar, whom everyone called Caligula. Unfortunately, the boys were still too young to rule. In Roman tradition, they needed to be at least 18 years old. But they represented the most direct ancestral line back to Julius Caesar, the great dictator of the Roman Republic. As a result, Tiberius's sole priority for the next decade was protecting the boys until one of them was ready to take over. Unfortunately, Tiberius at 60 years old was in no shape to be watching over teenage boys. So he assigned the task to two of his most trusted men, his 32-year-old son Drusus and his 38-year-old bodyguard Seanus. Drusus was an able leader who had supervised Tiberius's military for several years. But he was plagued by a quick mercurial temper. He was rumored to lash out at people who disrespected him, including his wife, Livia. Sianus, on the other hand, was a calm, measured leader. As head of Tiberius's elite Praetorian Guard, he was the most highly trained soldier in the empire. Unlike Drusus, Sianus was born into the lower class of Roman society. He was an equestrian by birth, which meant that he could never become emperor. However, what Sianus lacked in pedigree, he made up for in appearance and charm. He was naturally handsome and charismatic. He inspired fear in his military enemies and was respected amongst his soldiers. He was also popular with many Roman citizens, especially the women. Historians hypothesized that Tiberius envied Sianus's military and sexual prowess which explains why Tiberius was blind to the potential conflict of interest between Drusus and Sianus. But for now, it seemed like a smart decision to entrust Rome's heirs to Drusus and Sianus. And with his plan for succession settled, Tiberius began to prepare himself for retirement. He was tired after years of being surrounded by scheming politicians, and he wanted out. So, in the spring of 21 CE, 63-year-old Tiberius decided to test the waters by taking a sabbatical from Rome. He left the day-to-day -day operations in the hands of Drusus. Then he traveled 200 miles south from Rome to the region of Campania. There, in charming seaside towns, he lounged on beaches, drank wine, and tried to forget about Rome. It was on that trip that Tiberius discovered an isolated island called Capri. Tiberius fell in love with the quaint winding streets and lush green gardens. But as a naturally cautious man, he was also drawn to the island's defenses, specifically its 1,000-foot cliffs. For Tiberius, Capri seemed like the perfect retirement home a fortified rock castle surrounded by the turquoise moat of the Mediterranean. But while Tiberius was scouting for a place to retire in peace, 
there was trouble brewing back in Rome. Even though Drusus and Sejanus had been allies for years, traveling and fighting side by side for the empire, they were now at odds. As the son of the emperor, Drusus considered himself Tiberius's sole representative in Rome. In his mind, Sejanus was simply a bodyguard for Germanicus's sons. On the contrary, Sejanus thought he was Tiberius's representative. He was the strongest soldier in the empire. He was widely beloved and had the backing of the powerful Praetorian Guard. To be fair, much of the confusion was Tiberius's fault. Even though he left the realm in Drusus's hands, he frequently spoke of Sejanus as his partner. He commissioned statues of Sejanus, so the Roman Senate and citizens received conflicting messages. In the later months of 21 CE, the power struggle appeared to be too much for Drusus. He was stricken with fever and nearly died. Luckily, he recovered and continued to administer the empire for a time. The tensions simmered on for close to two years. Then, in 23 CE, they boiled over once again. With the Roman sun beating down on the Palatine and Forum, Drusus addressed the Senate. He said, A stranger was invited to assist in the government while the emperor's son was alive. To add insult to injury, Drusus reminded Sejanus to mind his position. He was a lowly equestrian who could never be a Roman nobleman. Sejanus countered that if Drusus were capable of leading the empire, Tiberius wouldn't have had to invite a stranger to assist. At that, Drusus's notorious temper flared. He struck Sejanus in the head. It took all of Sejanus's willpower not to strike Drusus back. No matter how much Tiberius respected Sejanus as a soldier, Roman law dictated that if an equestrian injured a nobleman, he would be arrested and likely executed. With all eyes of the Senate watching him, Sejanus swallowed his pride and took the abuse. As a cunning soldier, he knew his revenge was not to be had on the battlefield of the Roman Forum. He would exact his revenge when Drusus was least expecting it. In the days that followed, Sejanus set his sights on Drusus's wife Livia and his four-year-old son Gemellus. There were already rumors that Livia was unhappy in her marriage. Romans speculated that she had been on the receiving end of Drusus's temper, just like Sejanus. So, while Drusus was attending to imperial business, Sejanus began courting Livia. She quickly fell for his battle-hardened body and charm. But Sejanus was crafty. He didn't just convince Livia to have an affair. He convinced her of a complicated plan to advance her own political interests. Sejanus explained to Livia that Drusus and Tiberius didn't care about her or her son Gemellus. As far as Tiberius and Drusus were concerned, the only children who mattered in the empire were Germanicus's boys, 17-year-old Nero Caesar, 15-year-old Drusus Caesar, and 11-year-old Caligula. So, even though Gemellus was the true grandson of the emperor, he would never ascend the throne. Sejanus cleverly convinced Livia that if she allied with him, 
they could eliminate Drusus and eventually put Gemellus on the throne. For Livia, Seanus's plan was intoxicating. It was every Roman woman's dream to either be married to the emperor or to be the emperor's mother. This was her chance. So over the summer of 23 CE, Seanus and Livia put their plan into action. While Seanus and Livia plotted in Rome, 64-year-old Tiberius lounged by a swimming pool near the Mediterranean Sea. As far as he knew, the Roman Empire was running smoothly in his absence. The treasury was full, and his new strategy for succession seemed to be going according to plan. But then, on September 14, 23 CE, he received a tragic message. His 36-year-old son Drusus was dead. Coming up, Tiberius descends into madness after the death of his son. Hi, listeners. To celebrate our favorite month, Parcast Network is releasing a slate of new shows leaning into all things spooky and spine-tingling. And now we're bringing you an original series called Superstitions, featuring the origins and impacts of our most unusual beliefs and the stories of those who dare to defy them. Every week on Superstitions, hear a new drama that illustrates the eeriness and unlocks the mysteries of humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Like holding your breath while passing a cemetery so you don't wake the dead and make them jealous. Or carrying the foot of an animal known to have an evil eye. Or using iron to keep away the devil. They may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain, You ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of spooky October programming to enjoy. Now back to the story. September 14th, 23 CE, was one of the worst days of Emperor Tiberius's life. The 64-year-old head of the Roman Empire had just lost his only child, Drusus. Tiberius had survived many tragedies during his six decades. He witnessed the death of his father in exile, the excruciating final days of his brother after a horse accident and he stood vigil at the deathbed of his mentor and previous emperor, Augustus. Those events paled in comparison to losing his 36-year-old son. It was a moment that defined the rest of Tiberius's life. It dredged up deep-seated traumas and existential angst, and it underscored a common refrain of existence for Tiberius. He was alone, and there was nothing he could do about it. Besides the personal loss of Drusus, Tiberius evidently learned once again that the best-laid plans of emperors were useless and inconsequential against fate. He had witnessed a similar pattern with his predecessor, Emperor Augustus. Early in Augustus's reign, the emperor had planned to pass the throne to his nephew, but that boy died. Then he hoped to give it to his grandsons, but they, too, were killed or stricken by disease. Now the story was repeating itself. 
No matter how much he planned, the Empire was always in jeopardy. In the days that followed, Tiberius returned to Rome for his son's funeral. There were mournful processions and prayers in temples. Finally, Tiberius placed the young man's ashes in the mausoleum of Emperor Augustus. Throughout the funeral ceremonies, Tiberius was accompanied by one man, Sejanus. For years, Sejanus had been one of his most trusted advisors. Now, with Drusus gone, Sejanus was the only one. Unbeknownst to Tiberius, however, the man who was comforting him during his time of sorrow was the same person who had masterminded Drusus's death. Many ancient Roman historians were surprised that Tiberius didn't suspect foul play. Poisoning was a common practice in ancient Rome. Four years earlier, Germanicus was supposedly poisoned. So it would have been a natural assumption to make about the death of Drusus. The fact that Tiberius didn't suspect poisoning either meant that he truly believed Drusus died of natural causes, or he didn't have enough proof to say anything publicly. Still, after Drusus's death, Tiberius became increasingly paranoid and erratic. He believed that people were out to get him. He swung from being an isolated recluse to litigating every insult or verbal slight from Roman citizens. To root out treason and rebellions in the empire, Tiberius instituted a new system of laws in which citizens called delatores could report seditious behavior to the Senate. The reporting citizen received a percentage of the fines. In essence, Tiberius created a system of paid informants which resulted in countless lawsuits and fueled his own paranoia. Most of the time, Tiberius stayed out of the decisions. But in the early months of 25 CE, his troubled mind got the better of him. Several of Sejanus's delators brought a case to the Senate that involved a historian named Cordus. In one of Cordus's recent books, he spoke ill of both Sejanus and Tiberius. First, Cordus described a statue of Sejanus as a monstrosity to the empire. And second, Cordus said one of the conspirators against the great Julius Caesar was the last true Roman. Even after years of advocating for free speech, Tiberius took offense to Cordus's words. Besides the direct affront against his lieutenant Sejanus, Cordus implied that Tiberius was not a true Roman. Tiberius argued to the Senate that this amounted to treason. Before the Senate could punish Cordus, however, the writer starved himself to death. Even without a final legal judgment by the Senate, the results were clear. Tiberius's once stable reign was slipping away. He was officially becoming a paranoid tyrant, and Tiberius's increasing paranoia made him easy prey for Sejanus. Sejanus stepped up his plan to take over the empire, this time by setting his sights on Vipsania Agrippina, the widow of Germanicus and adopted daughter-in-law of Tiberius. Agrippina was a powerful and well-liked princess. She had accompanied Germanicus on many of his military campaigns, so she was seen as a fearless Roman woman. 
She was also the mother of the heirs to the throne, Nero Caesar, Drusus Caesar, and Caligula. Sejanus probably thought if he could sow conflict between Agrippina and Tiberius, perhaps Tiberius would disavow her sons from the throne and choose Livia's boy Gemellus instead. So, Sejanus set about fomenting a civil war within Tiberius's family. First, again according to Suetonius, Sejanus convinced Tiberius that Agrippina was actively plotting to overthrow him. It's important to note here that Suetonius, the historian who documented this period most famously, is notorious for stretching the truth. Some of the following may be fabricated. Sejanus pointed to Agrippina's popularity amongst Romans. He said that it was only a matter of time until she amassed enough power to remove Tiberius and install one of her sons. Even though that was Tiberius's eventual plan, Sejanus knew that it would anger Tiberius that Agrippina was overstepping her authority. Besides being a bug in Tiberius's ear, Sejanus cleverly worked the other side of the conflict, too. He had informants embedded amongst Agrippina's friends and confidants. There, he planted suspicions that Tiberius was attempting to poison her. Sejanus's agents whispered that Tiberius never wanted Agrippina's sons to be emperor, and he was vying to kill all of them. Ironically, it was Sejanus who was trying to do that. But at the time, Agrippina didn't realize the truth. So, in the springtime of 25 CE, Tiberius and Agrippina were pitted against each other. According to some historians, one of the most dramatic clashes occurred at a dinner party hosted by Tiberius. As servants circulated with trays of decadent food, Agrippina refused to eat. She was suspicious that Tiberius would use the opportunity to poison her. Conversely, Tiberius watched his daughter-in-law refusing to eat his food. At one point, Tiberius even personally offered her an apple, but she refused it. Not only did this offend Tiberius as a host, it also fed into his suspicions of Agrippina's potential plot against him. The entire scene was a stroke of genius for Sejanus, who sat back and watched Tiberius and Agrippina attack each other. In the weeks that followed, Tiberius is said to have fixated on the dinner party. He couldn't shake the thought that his own daughter-in-law would refuse his food. However true it is, this particular story underscores how much Tiberius detested life in Rome. It's clear he longed to return to the island paradise of Capri, far away from temperamental princesses and all the political schemes of the empire. Once again, according to Suetonius, Sejanus seized the opportunity to advance his plan. He agreed with Tiberius that Capri was the best place for him. But this time, Sejanus didn't want it to be temporary. Sejanus set about convincing Tiberius to retire to Capri forever. To accomplish this, Sejanus supposedly convinced Tiberius that if Agrippina was trying to kill him, Capri would be the most difficult place for her to attack. From the thousand-foot cliffs, Tiberius could see ships coming from miles away. In Rome, on the other hand, Tiberius was an easy target. 
There were too many roads and alleys. There were spies and sycophants. Sejanus argued that if Tiberius stayed in Rome, he'd likely be dead within the year. And in a master stroke of manipulation, Sejanus didn't only target Tiberius's paranoia, he also appealed to Tiberius's fragile ego. Sejanus flattered Tiberius with reports that Rome was in better condition now than it had been during the reign of the great Augustus. The treasury was rich. The roads and temples were fixed. Since Tiberius was so skilled at leading the realm, of course he could do the same from Capri. Then, to conclude his appeal, Sejanus reminded Tiberius that Germanicus's boys would be safe in his care. Who better to care for them than the head of the Praetorian Guard? Sejanus's words were a salve to Tiberius's wounded soul. He had been trying to retire for over a decade. From time to time he had left Rome temporarily, but he had always returned. In the final months of 25 CE, however, Tiberius decided to follow Sejanus's advice or his private whims. It's unclear which. Whatever the case, he wouldn't be budged. He was going to leave Rome permanently. Coming up, Tiberius's madness spirals out of control on Capri. Now back to the story. In the year 25 CE, 66-year-old Tiberius officially retired from Rome. He still retained the title of emperor, and most decisions in the realm remained his sole purview. But his lieutenant and partner, Sejanus, was in charge of the day-to-day -day administration. Much speculation surrounded Tiberius's reasons for retirement. Many historians pointed to the fact that Tiberius never wanted to be emperor in the first place. When he was finally thrust into the position, he spent years trying to escape. Even when Tiberius tolerated the job of emperor, he hated the politics and rumor mill of Rome. From a very young age, Tiberius suffered at the hands of the Roman political machine. When he was an infant, his parents were forced into exile for their political views. When they were finally allowed to return, Emperor Augustus stole Tiberius's mother for his wife. During Tiberius's adolescence, Romans ridiculed his awkward appearance. Even after he became emperor, Tiberius was frequently slandered by Roman citizens. They disliked his bookish, prudish ways, especially his policies against gladiator games. But Tiberius wasn't only concerned with the Roman public. Since the death of Drusus, he was breaking down mentally and physically. His behavior was more and more capricious. He reacted to the slightest verbal insult. Besides Tiberius's mental state, his physical appearance worsened too. In his later years, his skin developed a prominent rash and became covered in pus-filled sores. At least according to Suetonius, a notable gossip. His book, The Twelve Caesars, written in 121 CE, is both an extremely valuable source of information about Roman life and generally unreliable in its level of detail. Most of the following narrative about the end of his life is questioned by other, more contemporary historians. 
especially because Suetonius had his access to official archives taken away as he began his project. According to Suetonius, Tiberius was convinced that the sun and salt water of Capri would help alleviate his conditions. And if not, it would at least shelter him from further embarrassment. So with a panoply of reasons to leave Rome, Tiberius' servants organized an imperial caravan to rival the Roman army. There were carts and chariots full of builders, stone masons, craftsmen, and cooks. Sejanus led the way along with a heavy contingent of Praetorian Guard. It was an awesome sight to see. The caravan wound slowly out of Rome, down the coast, toward the southern reaches of the empire. One of Tiberius's first stops on the long journey to Capri was a small coastal town called Spurlonga. There, Tiberius planned to host a lavish dinner party for his companions. Also in the city of Spurlonga, Sejanus demonstrated once and for all his bravery and commitment to the emperor. It was a balmy evening in the late summer of 25 CE. Tiberius welcomed his distinguished guests to a villa set into a hillside above the Mediterranean. The dining room was a rock cave lit only by oil lamps. For the first time in years, Tiberius felt like he could relax and enjoy life away from Rome. There were servants with endless clay jugs of wine and many trays of exotic fruits and meats. But suddenly, in the middle of dinner, part of the cave collapsed. People screamed and ducked for cover. Chaos engulfed the party. As the dust settled, everyone realized that Sejanus had leapt to protect Tiberius from falling rocks. The head of the Praetorian Guard had shielded the emperor with his own body and risked his life to protect him. The story of Sejanus's bravery spread quickly. After that, Tiberius considered Sejanus his best friend. Of course, unbeknownst to Tiberius, Sejanus was concocting traitorous schemes at every turn. After the incident in the cave, Tiberius and the imperial caravan eventually boarded ships and completed their journey to the island of Capri. Sejanus helped Tiberius get settled on the island. He entrusted some of his best soldiers to protect the emperor. Then he readied to return to Rome. For Tiberius, it was a bittersweet goodbye. Sejanus was the only person he trusted in the empire. He was sad to see him go, but he was also thankful to have him as his proxy in Rome. Without Sejanus, Tiberius would be stuck in the capital, dealing with the Senate. Of course, without Sejanus, Tiberius's son Drusus might still be alive as well. As Tiberius waved to Sejanus's departing ship, he turned to the task at hand. He needed to build Capri into the paradise he had always wanted. Over the next few years, Tiberius built numerous villas on the island. One in particular was his favorite. Perched atop one of the highest hilltops, the elaborate mansion and fortress was called Villa Jovis, or Villa of Jupiter. There, 1,000 feet above the Mediterranean, Tiberius and his guards were able to see any approaching vessels. It was a perfect vantage point for a paranoid emperor. 
Inside the villa were luxurious apartments for Tiberius and his guests. There were offices for imperial business. Even though Sianus handled most administrative duties in Rome, the Senate still required Tiberius to rule on significant legal matters, executions, and issues of the Roman treasury. When the few items of business were complete, Tiberius returned to his leisure activities. He and his guests enjoyed gardens, bathhouses, and swimming pools. Modern scholars contend that the scandalous stories about Tiberius on Capri were exaggerated, but ancient Roman historians chronicled orgies and sexual perversions that they were afraid to even describe. According to the historian Suetonius, Tiberius transformed into a heavy-drinking party fiend on Capri. Tiberius decorated Villa Jovis with erotic paintings and constructed a library of sexual texts to motivate shy guests. He frolicked with young boys and girls in bathhouses and swimming pools. He hosted orgies in the gardens overlooking the Mediterranean. Even Tiberius's religious activities on Capri frequently involved sex. Suetonius chronicled a ceremonial offering to the gods at which the emperor became enamored with one of the young acolytes. Before the ceremony was over, Tiberius kidnapped the boy and his brother and raped them. Days later, when the boys accused the emperor of the act, Tiberius ordered their legs broken. Sadly, the boys were some of the lucky ones. Suetonius also described a young woman who was brought to Tiberius's bed. When she refused his advances, he accused her of treason and she was executed. Other guests who displeased Tiberius were imprisoned or starved. The worst offenders were taken to a balcony overlooking the sea called Tiberius's Leap. There, they were thrown off the thousand-foot cliff onto the rocks and sea below. Tiberius's life in Capri was a violent mixture of paranoia and sexual frustration, and it played right into the hands of Seanus. As long as Tiberius was scared to return to Rome and was occupied with an endless supply of young boys and girls on Capri, Seanus could pursue his plan to consolidate power. Back in Rome, Seanus went to work. First, he relocated much of the Praetorian Guard from around the empire to the capital. That would allow him to easily subdue any uprisings or revolts. It also served as an intimidation tactic against the Senate or any other individuals who might stand up to him. With the backing of the Praetorian Guard, Seianus began unilaterally choosing political appointees and governors. He appointed his family and friends to prized positions throughout the realm. If the Senate objected, Seanus requested that Tiberius write letters praising him as his socius laborium, Latin for his partner in work. Then, with control of the Senate secured, Seanus once again turned his sights on Agrippina and her family. He systematically hunted down and executed her supporters. Sianus was careful not to target Agrippina directly for fear of angering Tiberius. But he believed if he could weaken her enough, perhaps she would lash out at Tiberius. And meanwhile, Sianus executed perhaps the crowning achievement in his plan to take over Tiberius's reign. 
he seized control of the Imperial Messenger Service. By personally overseeing all of the messages going to and from Capri, he was able to manipulate most of the information to and from Tiberius. For close to six years, Sejanus became the key link between Tiberius and Rome, and thus became the emperor's puppet master. But he wasn't able to stop all messages from getting to Tiberius. In the early months of 31 CE, Tiberius received a secret communique through a trusted servant. It contained news that would rock the empire. The letter outlined how Sejanus and Livia had poisoned Tiberius's son Drusus. It went on to detail Sejanus's plan to eliminate Drusus and Tiberius in order to put Gemellus on the throne. Tiberius was speechless. He shook with rage. For years he had called Sejanus his partner, his bodyguard, and his best friend. But now, Tiberius realized it all had been a ruse to manipulate him. If he couldn't trust Sejanus, who could he trust? For Tiberius, it was the final straw that sent him down a dark path to madness. He plunged into a deep, self-loathing depression for the remainder of his life. But in the meantime, Tiberius realized he had to take action. Sejanus was plotting to overthrow him, and the future of the Roman Empire was in jeopardy. He had to act now, or it might be too late. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we return with Tiberius's attempt to rescue Rome from the clutches of Sejanus, and we dive deep into the reign of his adopted grandson, Caligula. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals by Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Adam DeSilva, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hang a horseshoe above your door, keep a rabbit's foot in your pocket, and follow Superstitions free on Spotify. Listen every Wednesday for the surprising backstories to our most curious beliefs and thrilling tales that illuminate the mystical eeriness of our favorite superstitions.